all you wiretappers out there, I'm back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, as you can tell. Uh, recently, Netflix released a very high-end, high-production values documentary called Get Gotti. I've watched the first one. And it's, it's pretty darn good, actually. They really they did a good job, just like they did on Fear City. Now, I interviewed one of the participants in this documentary about five years ago. So I went back and looked that interview up. It was a, a woman uh, uh, who was involved in and around Gotti's personal party life. Her name is Andrea Giovino, and she has written a tell-all book called Divorce from the Mob. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about her before I play these clips from her interview. She grew up in a mob family in Brooklyn. Her mother ran an illegal gambling game and crap game for uh, Joey Gallo, crazy Joey Gallo in the basement of their house. Two of her brothers will grow up and end up in the mob and be contract killers for different crime families. One, Frankie Silvestri, was a member of the Colombo family. And the other brother, Johnny Silvestri, or Bubblegum, they called him, was a freelancing button man for the Lucchese's and, and other groups. And he's presently incarcerated in a federal prison on a murder rap. Uh, Silvestri, uh, Frankie Silvestri, he got involved in some of the drug things that she and her last husband or next to the last husband, maybe if she got married again, got involved in. And he did some time. Uh, he actually uh, talked a little bit to help her get out of it. She'll tell you a little more about that. She's really hesitant to talk at that time. She's uh, Now that she's been in this documentary, she was probably a little more free and easy talking. And, and it's been a few years since then. But at the end of her interview, she tells a little bit about making a documentary and, and who's in it. And 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 just think about it, this is five years ago. That's how long a major network spent on this documentary. So it's it's crazy. And originally it was going to be on A&E, she said. But I think that Netflix somehow bought out a lot of the footage and the, the project and took it over because it's exactly as she describes. I need to give you a little needed background before we actually hear from Mrs. Giovino. Uh, that's G-E-G-I-O-B-I-N-O, Andrea Giovino. By the time she was 21, uh, she was the live-in girlfriend of a Bonanno capo named Frank Lino. Now, you may have heard of Frank Lino. Uh, he's a pretty well-connected guy in the Bonanno family. He was uh, he was really involved with, close to uh, Joy Messina and other capos in the family. He was wealthy enough. He bought her a 1978 Mercedes-Benz 450 SL convertible as a Valentine's Day gift one time. He would instruct her in the art, shall we call it, the art of buying the best brands in clothing and jewelry. Uh, he would send her out shopping in a chauffeur limo. Needless to say, she was very, very attractive. She's still attractive, but you you see her in that documentary. You can imagine what she must have looked like when she was in her early 20s. Uh, he bought them matching platinum presidential Rolex watches. Now, get that. A huh? little history on Frank Leno. A little history on Frank Leno, which I found him an interesting guy. He was once arrested for the shootings of two Brooklyn police detectives, a Luke Fallon and a John Finnegan out of the 70th detective squad. They were aged 28 and 56, and they were found shot dead after a holdup of a tobacco store. And Leno was part of that robbery, and they got $5,000. Now, that must have been a tobacco store that, that had a bunch of cash in it for some whatever reason. He was charged with the murders because he supplied the getaway vehicle so one of the stick-up men could run away to Chicago. Uh, somebody must have really started talking, and, and the chips started falling, the the dominoes started falling in this deal, and they got to him, who really only supplied a car after the fact. They took him into the 66th Precinct 
for interrogation. This was not a fun interrogation. Now, he claimed later that the cops drove staples into his hands and a broomstick up his butt, kind of like the uh, Ahmed Dallo guy or whatever his name was that uh, that I think one somebody really did do that with him. Anyhow, he did have a broken arm and a broken leg after he got out of the police station that day. He was led off with three e-cop to three years probation after he was threatened to sue the city for police brutality. They say that one of his eyes blinked uncontrollably from then on, in which he claimed were injuries he received from that 1962 police beating in the uh, 66 precinct. He confided to his mistress, Andrea Giovino, that he was unlucky because his son Michael is a huge gambler and has lost a lot of money. So these mob guys often have family problems like that, and she's going to talk a lot about that life. She also reported that he got really pissed off when a Bonanno member named Ronald Filicomo had his son Joseph Lino help dispose of Sonny Black or Dominic Napoletano's corpse in 1981. Frank Lino himself will eventually become a government government witness like all the rest of those New York mobsters. He testifies against his own son, Joseph, and was in on charges of extortion and racketeering. Frank Lino was a guy who was in the room when the three capos, Dominic Trinchera, Philip uh, Jacqueloni, and Sonny, Brett, Sonny Red and Delicato were gunned down, if you remember the, the murder of the three capos. But... He was in there, but he ran it. There's one guy that ran out there. He was the guy that ran out the door when the shooting started. Uh, he also got involved in the murder. Joey Messino got him involved in the murder of Sonny Black Napoletano. And we know why that happened, because he introduced Joe Pistone or Donnie Brasco into the family and, and promoted him and, and really try, tried to get him to be a made man. I think he's the one that that's probably what really killed him. Joe Messino supposedly said, you know, there's a, there's a ticket's got to be punched for this or a receipt to collect a receipt for this uh, little lapse in insecurity. Leno supposedly picked up Napoletano and took him over to this uh, Ernest Filicomo's house. Uh, Leno pushed Napoletano down the stairs and Filicomo shot him to death down the stairs, down at the bottom of the stairs. He, this was, of course, from Joe Messino. She got involved with a relationship with a Gotti-connected heroin dealer named Mark Ryder. Ryder will go on with Anthony Ruggiano and Gene Gotti, and they'll go down on kind of the famous narcotics charges. If, uh, if you ever watch Fear City, they, they talk a lot about those narcotics charges where Anthony Ruggiano or Quack Quack was talking a lot and they had this narcotics case on him. She wasn't really that connected to him. She has an interesting story about how she met him this one night on the dance floor with John Gotti. But then she'll eventually marry another drug dealer. And this, this lady, she liked that high life. I'll tell you right now, she liked things and, and that high life. She's totally different than that now. She married a drug dealer named John Fogarty. Now, not that John Fogarty, <laughs> the other John Fogarty. Now, when they met, Fogarty was living in a shabby one-bedroom apartment wearing tracksuits and trainers. It wasn't long after that as they got together and he was taking on bigger risk, he ended up buying a $100,000 speedboat. He named it the Andy Girl after Andrea. She claims that John Fogarty would rent a limo and drive down Atlantic City with a trunk full of cocaine for distri distribution down there. He was known as Big John. He had a reputation for being tough. She talks a little bit about that. What I could find out about him, he owned a construction company and uh, he was involved with the Gotti folks through the construction business. He established a Cuban connection in Florida and started moving these kilos of cocaine up to New York. The mob wanted part of it, so we had to kick them a piece of the action. And she talks about that. She kind of showed what he was made of when he set up a couple of guys from Brazil who were transporting a large, lo large load of coke up to him. 
after he got the cocaine, he, he kept the money and shot the Brazilians in the head and left them for dead. He said the mob knew they could count on him. Now, he was Irish, so he could never be a made guy, but he was he was a good earner, and he was on his way up. That all will crash and burn in the end. She'll end up in the witness protection program, and she talks uh, uh, about that in her life there. She said that one time uh, Fogarty came home one night for dinner, and he had two bodies in the trunk. Uh, she made him take off his bloody shoes before he entered the house. This is all in her book. She told him, said, you're not invincible. Look what happened to Mark Ryder. And, he, you know, he was on his way. The feds got him and they were on the on his way to the penitentiary. She knew that when he became arrogant and angry and defensive, that he was headed for a crash pad somewhere and just let, walked out on her. And she knew who was on his way down. The, the whole thing was spinning out of control on her. Fogarty's Miami connection was a Cuban named Aldo, and he was really close. He would come over to their house for dinner, and she liked to cook chicken parmesan and, and other Italian dishes. He'd always stay at their house when they came. Aldo one time made a $40,000 payment to her husband, John Fogarty, in counterfeit bills. Now, maybe he knew it and maybe he didn't. I like to think he didn't really know it. But the next time they were together and out drinking, our friend Aldo was never seen again and they never found his body. She said she suspected her husband killed him and disposed of his body. She wasn't happy about it. She liked the guy. And then she noticed that he was wearing a Rolex, a different Rolex, and that had been Aldo's, and she left him after that. Said she used to pray, God let John go to jail so the insanity stops, and pretty soon he did catch a case, and he checked himself into rehab in Kentucky. While he was down there in the treatment center, he did a treatment center drug deal, met a guy who claimed he could get him a great deal on a lot of Kentucky marijuana, which there is a there's a whole bluegrass mafia, they call it down there, big marijuana dealers. He agreed, and after he released, he went down to Tennessee, pick up what he thought was $100,000 worth of high-grade Kentucky marijuana, but he met with the uh, DEA agent who was actually his treatment center her buddy and the rest is history. He was arrested and charged with interstate trafficking and held without bail in. During this time when he goes in, they tap under his phone and they listen to some three-way conversations between herself, Fogarty, and her brother, John Silvestri, who was kind of, there was the enforcer type. And they were talking about collecting debts. And John Fogarty told uh, Sylvester, he said, tell them we'll rip their fucking heads off. And Andrea said some words like that, too. In the end, they put the, put the whole case together. They arrest her and her brother. They search four Staten Island residences, and they're all part of their network. And Fogarty ends up confessing to a bunch of murders. Uh, he served six, six years in the federal penitentiary before going into witness protection. Her brother... Frankie Silvestri confessed to the murder of nine men. And again, he started giving testimony about somebody and he is in witness protection. She gave a lot of information. They gave information on people and they gave everybody up in order to help her is what she claims. She ended up with a settlement of $75,000, moved her to a new town, small town. She had a little baby six months old. She didn't know what to do. She didn't really want to go into witness protection and go somewhere else. She's out, went to Pennsylvania, made friends with some DEA agents, and they kind of protected her for a while. And she ended up joining the PTA and joining the church and fundraising committee and became friends with these agents. Andrea had quite a life. So sit back and listen to Andrea Giovini talk a little bit about her life and her book don't forget is divorced from the mob i became involved in this lifestyle um my mom 
back in the uh, early 60s with running crackins in the basement of our home uh, for Crazy Joe Gallo. What happened back then, yeah, I come from one of a one of ten, so my dad was a truck trailer driver, but you know, there was a lot of poverty back in the day. So the street guys were the guys that were making money. They used to pay my mom, play cards in, in the basement. You know, we were very young. We would, you know, go upstairs, serve some food and she'd get paid for that. So I was very comfortable, you know, growing up with the guys in the neighborhood. Eventually as I became a teenager, that's what I was attracted to because that's what I was comfortable with. They didn't believe in education because they felt that, you know, education you go and you learn bad things in college or in, you know, high school and you know, had drinks and drugs, have sex. So my dad was more about get married, find a guy, cater to your husband and Basically, that was a big farce because every woman today, I feel, should have an education. But that's why I got involved with the people I got involved with because of low self-esteem and not being able to have an education and being comfortable with people that that's all I knew was that type of personality. I started, uh, like, in the neighborhood that I grew in, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst. Everybody knew the street guys, and I think that I dated a lot of street guys. But frankly, no, at 22 years old, I was even captain. I was with him for quite a few years. I think I learned a lot from him about the street life. And then after that, it was more Mark Ryder, which I was very comfortable with. John Gotti, Mark Ryder, uh, you know, I knew all the all those, you know, very high high profile organized crime people. Bruce Cutler knowing me, which was John Gotti's attorney, that I ran with these people and they were very comfortable speaking in front of me because they knew I knew the lifestyle and they knew they could trust me of not saying stuff that I had overheard. But but I'll tell you one particular story that's a pretty good story. Um, the guys in the neighborhood growing back, you know, going back in that time frame, that era, take care of their own. Italians take care of their own. I had a problem. I was in, I had been divorced um, from a legal businessman that I was married to. And I was in the midst of buying a home. I was in contract. And back in the day, they you didn't have to, they didn't have the law where you had to show where your money came from. So long story short, I put $60,000 on a house in Queen, Queens Village. The house was 260000 So I put 60000 under the table with the guy. He was an Irish guy that owned a couple of bars in Manhattan or along 2nd Avenue. So I gave him 60000 cash money, but then I decided a couple months later, I didn't want to stay in Queens. I wanted to move back to Brooklyn. So I had said to him, I think I'm going to, I want to get out of the deal. I said, you can still sell a house and all that. I said, but you know, you got to give me the money back. Long story short, he says, no, I'm not giving the money back. No way. I'm not doing it. And I said to him, you really want to go this road? I said, because I mean, this is not something that I'm going to sit back and take. You really, you know, like I kept trying to really work with this guy to give me the money back. He didn't want to give me the money back. Long story short, I go to the club in Brooklyn where all the street guys are that know me. And Danny Marino was there, which became the boss after Danny Gravano left. He took over. Danny took over. He was a captain back then. He was very recognized and also very well respected in the street. And he knew me very well. I told him the story. And, he, and I'll never forget it. It was a Thursday. He said to me, you're going to be home. I was living in Queens at the time. You'll be home tomorrow morning? And I said, yeah, I'm going to be home. And he said, okay, I'll have somebody contact you. I said, okay. 
lo and behold, they went to the guy's bar. The old man had his son working for him. Son was working. There were four guys that pulled up, and they said, who they, you know, they, they let them know that, you know, we were street people and that you're not going to be her. They took the son in the car to the father's house and they gave him no other choice but to give the money back. And I'm not going to say what was done, what wasn't done. But the next morning, 10 o'clock, somebody was at my door with the whole $60,000. And I said, well, did you, why didn't you take something, 5000 whatever? And they said, no, 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 we're not taking anything because nobody's going to come into our neighborhood and try to shake down somebody that we know that is a good person that you know you just don't beat a woman interesting so they, they, they did take care of their own if they knew people get scared of organized crime and they think like oh what these uh people are going to do which they never go out and hurt innocent people they don't do that it's amongst themselves it's amongst territory sometimes it's among somebody tried to rip somebody off somebody tried to beat you somebody took over somebody else's business they don't go try to hurt innocent people yeah, that, that's been my experience. I'm uh, I'm looking over my notes here from uh, from your book, and and I note that uh, when you met Mark Ryder the first night, he was sitting with John Gotti uh, in a Manhattan in a club in Manhattan. Uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit about that yeah. story? It, it describes him as being a dead ringer for actor Ray Liotta, a handsome, uh, hard faced dude. Yeah, he was very handsome, very handsome, very handsome. I was just out with my friends. People like us could recognize other people. Like I just knew they were street guys. We just we all could recognize each other, just our mannerisms. I was out with my sister and my girlfriends and they sent me over a bottle of Don Perignon and I said oh it was actually a bottle of Cristal because John Gotti liked Cristal. And I sent it back and then when I went on the dance floor, Mark Ryder said came over and started dancing and he was like, He sent the bottle back. I was like, Yeah, I don't I don't want to be bothered and he was like, you know, John Gotti, guys, and I don't care who he is. Tell him I don't want nothing. But they like that feistiness. They like that you can handle your own. And then that's actually how I met Mark Ryder, uh, was very persistent. And um, I met John Gotti through him. But I already knew Bruce Cutler because Bruce Cutler was pretty well known. And we used him as an attorney. I just know all those guys, you know, through the neighborhood. So that's Mark Ryder, uh Best I could tell, he already was uh, running a pretty decent size uh, heroin distribution organization. And, and I have to assume if he can sit with John Gotti, then John Gotti was probably getting a piece of that action. I, I don't know if that ever came out. Tell us a little bit about. Well, they always get a piece of the action. I mean, if you're, they always get like kickbacks from stuff like that. And then in turn, the Gambino crime family protect those people if they have a problem in the street. So, I mean, they, they all got convicted on the heroin charges. Gene Gotti, it was Anthony Coniglia, uh, Mark Ryder, which were all connected to the Gambino crime family. So it's, it's a public knowledge that heroin, uh, actually even Angelo Ruggiero, that was caught on wiretap through DEA and FBI speaking about heroin and all of that. Gambino crime family was getting kicked back from the heroin trafficking. Interesting. So much for the mafia uh, ban on uh, drug dealing, I guess. Uh, as long as you can distance yourself a little bit. Why well, We had the same thing in Kansas City. I do believe, though, that um, John Gotti, back in that time frame, like, you know, the whole Gambino crime family, Tolly Castellano, when he was killed and all of that, were the most biggest, notorious gangsters as big as Al Capone. I mean, you know, you have tough guys, lobsters in Jersey, Chicago, wherever, but you've not heard of anyone like John Gotti. I mean, 
when you were to meet John Gotti, and if you ever met him, you would understand he walked in a room and, and there was so much charisma just reeking from him. You would just know that he's somebody. Here he is, a notorious, cold-blooded killer, and he's on the cover of Time magazine. I don't know of anyone other than Al Capone that got the notoriety or the recognition other than John Gotti. It's a, it's a good way to draw a lot of government attention, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. A lot of government attention. But is crime worth it? No, it's not worth it. It's not. You know, I have a totally different life, almost 20 cents, almost 30 years now. You know, that was when I was very young. I'm a totally different person today. I'm not the person I was. I live a very peaceful, you know, great life. I raise my children differently. I try to teach people crime doesn't pay. I was very young, very naive. That's all I know. I believe when you have harsh downfall, like I did, I mean, with me, there were contracts out all my life. I was facing a lot of prison time, so I had no other way to go but then to go up. I lost custody of one of my children. Um, you know, the wiretaps of, of a hit on me were very real because the feds came to me and my attorney and made me listen to it. You know, my whole life changed. I'm fearless. I'm not afraid. If I was afraid, I wouldn't have wrote a book. I feel that there's a bigger person than me watching over me. I'm very spiritual, very grounded. I speak out. I've always been that way. I feel that, you know, if I was to teach young women something, it's to teach them that whatever ethnic group or uh, religion or gang or whatever you get involved in, and the guy is a bad boy, he's a drug dealer, he's a killer, it might look like a good life or it might look, you know, fast lane, but it's not. It's going to bring you down to a level that you don't really want to go or, or you're not going to be able to get out. I just don't, I don't, I would never date a guy. I would be around those types of men today. I wouldn't condone anything they do today. Are there criminals still out there? Absolutely. Was it back like it was in the day? No. But um, it's not something that I would want to be proud of. It's actually something I'm ashamed of, and it's something that is very difficult for me to speak about. I want to know a little, a little bit about the man you did marry, uh, uh, John Fogarty. It looks like uh, he was the father of, of some of your, you have some children by him. Matter of fact, I think. My two yes. Right. Yes. One, one of your daughters was even on the Mob Wives uh, for the season or two that it was on, which is kind of yes. interesting. Uh, I think Karen Gravano and, and uh, I can't remember the other couple of gals. on That was a, that was a pretty exciting yeah, show. Karen Gravano. Yeah, Renee Graziano. Yep, all of them. John Fogarty, a tough, very tough Irish guy from Staten Island, um, did what he had to do, drug runner himself, oh, always, you know, in the streets, got involved with my brothers and other people I know in the street life. And then um, everyone got arrested, uh, was facing a lot of time. I mean, he actually, he actually, him and my brother cooperated to take me off the case. Oh, interesting. I've heard of that before, where a husband will, will go in and cooperate in order to keep his wife or child from being charged. That's a that's a pretty common tool that uh, law enforcement will use if it's possible to use it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them were facing a lot of years in prison. I mean, he did 10 years in prison. My brother did close to 15 years. A lot of the guys are still in that were on my case. People think that when you cooperate, you get a sweet deal. You still go to prison. You still come out and, you know, you have it hard or get relocated with a different name, different ID. But people think that you don't go to prison. Of course you go to prison. It might not be 25 years, but they did like 10, 15 years. So, um, you know, that, that's, 
you know, better doing 10 years than 25 to life, you know, it is, it's, a, it's just not a good life. Uh, there was a huge amount of yeah. money. I bet you guys had a pretty high lifestyle. It probably looked like lifestyles of the rich and famous uh, at one point in time. Yeah, but it's all not worth it. Today, I lead a very humble, simple life. It's not, all of that's not worth it. Nothing impresses me today. What impresses me, people that live their life with integrity, that are honest, that are good, that are great husbands, great fathers, great members of the community. I believe when you're so entrenched in it and you don't see clearly because I was so entrenched in that life, you don't know anything other than that life. You don't know. So I think for me, the best thing that happened to me was getting arrested was losing everything because when I was arrested and I was relocated, I was able to develop and I was able to grow and see that there is more to life than that. And taking out of my environment was very, very, very scary for me. And being brought to an area where no one in that area is like me was so foreign and so scary that I had no other choice but to change and to grow up and to see that that lifestyle is wrong on every level. It's a very, very hard life. It's a tough life. You either, you know, get killed or go to prison for a long time. It's all not worth it. I try to, when I do speaking engagements, teach women to not go after the bad guy or the guy in the fast lane that has the quick cash. That education is very important and that without education, you know, you're going to make poor choices in your life the way I did because of low self-esteem. Now, don't forget, Andrea, Andrea Giovanni and her book is Divorced from the Mob. She's in the new Netflix series, Get Gotti. So check her out on that. I thank her for her time and participation with her success with her book. Now, y'all know I ride a motorcycle, so look out for motorcycles when you're out there driving around. If you have a problem with PTSD, go to the VA website and get their hotline number. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, we just talked about problem people with problems or drug or drugs or alcohol. They should have gone to Anthony Ruggiano's treatment center. If you have that problem, go to his website and get that hotline number. And you know, he's a drug and alcohol counselor down in Florida. So go down to Florida and let him be your, your counselor. And then let me know about it. Let me know about the experience. He's got a YouTube page. Also, I think you can find the hotline number there. And don't forget to give me a big thumbs up and subscribe down below or go to the app and give me a review and subscribe and all that kind of stuff. Anyhow, whatever you want to do. Thanks, guys. I just love doing this.